Hello and welcome to Theology on Tape. My name is Shane Ackerman. I'm here as always with Elizabeth Burbach. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I haven't did an intro. How did it sound? I think it's good. Um, what are we talking about today? That's what I would ask you. We're going to be continuing our commandment series. Uh-huh. We have covered the first five, and this one is thou shall not commit adultery. Yeah. And actually, we're going to smuggle in commandment number nine as well. Oh, okay. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. Yeah. They're related. Okay. So we have um, prayer for chastity for this, um, this episode. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, lover of chastity, Mary, mother most pure, and Joseph, chaste guardian of the Virgin, to you I come at this hour, begging you to plead with God for me. I earnestly wish to be pure in thought, word, and deed, in imitation of your holy purity. Amen. Amen. All right, let's review. Let's, let's start by going back to the beginning, because I said before this would be very important when we talked about what does it mean for something to be good. So this is where this pays off. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean for something to be good? Do you remember what we said? For it to fulfill its purpose. Yeah. So like, oh, this is a good pen. If I tell you this is a good pen, what do you assume that I mean about it? it writes well. You yeah. can hold it. Because that's what pens are for. Yeah. Right? Something is good precisely because it does what it uniquely does. Mm-hmm. Like chairs are for sitting in. Now, you can do a lot of different things with chairs. But they have one specific purpose that is their unique, particular, specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And if it's good at that, if it performs that function, that's what makes it a good thing. Mm-hmm. If it successfully fulfills its purpose. So that's a word about what something, um, what makes something good is because it does what it uniquely does. All right, so now let's apply that to the sixth commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. Adultery, more specifically, is to violate the marriage vows, as in like sleeping with someone who is married, but who's mm-hmm. not your spouse. Yeah. Right. So breaking the marriage vows. So that's kind of the capital sin when it comes to commandment number six. So adultery is telling us something about marriage. That's where I want to start. If we think about marriage, what is unique about the marriage relationship? How is marriage different from all other relationships? What makes marriage marriage? Well, beyond the love that you would have with a friend or other relations... There's procreation, there's sex. Yeah. See, and it, I, honestly, I think in an average situation, if you ask somebody that, um, like what makes marriage difference, what, what makes marriage different, I think they're going to run through a lot of other things of like, oh, marriage is about lifelong commitment. Marriage mm-hmm. is about love and mutual support. And, and people will give you a million different things about what marriage is. It's a deeper love or yeah, something like that. Yeah, before they come to like the real concrete answer, which is that it's sex. Mm-hmm. Because all those other things you have with friends and family and whatever, right? The relationship between a parent and a child, well, that's a lifelong commitment that is unique and exclusive and et cetera, right? Yeah. But what makes that not marriage is sex. Right. So we just lay that out. So If we had the Venn diagram, there wouldn't be... This would be a separate category. Yeah. So, and this is important because that's how we identify something. Is because, it, like we said with a chair, 
you can use a chair for a million different things, but what is its specific purpose? What does it do that other things don't do? That's how we understand its nature. So what's the nature of the marriage relationship is human sexuality. So what makes sex different from other human activities? Because the end is children? Yeah, it's the only thing that we can do that creates new people. That's its unique function. And even like biologically, and it's so funny how people want to dance around this and say like, oh, well, sex is about this and it's about that. Let's be honest, especially for maybe more secular people who want to be like scientifically minded, like any evolutionary biologist would tell you that your physical sex drive is whether you acknowledge it or not or recognize it or not is a desire to procreate. Yeah, it's one of our like three main survival needs. Yeah. So even if we consciously subvert the end of procreation, the fact that we have this like biological sex drive is precisely a biological desire to procreate. So that's that is the unique thing that sex is and that sex does is procreation. But that's talking, as I said, strictly scientifically, like from a biological bodily perspective. But we're more than bodies, right? Uh, we are body and soul. And so sex is not just about procreation, like it would be for animals, right? Mm -hmm. But for us as spiritual creatures, there's also in human sexuality this component of like what we call the unitive purpose. So Pope Paul VI in his encyclical Humanae Vitae, and I strongly encourage uh, all people to read that. It's not long. It's like, it, it's like an essay. You know, it's maybe 20, 30 pages, something like that. Mm -hmm. It may be longer than that. It's, it's short. It's an essay. It's not a book length thing. What he describes there is that human sexuality has two intrinsic, what he calls ends, or what we would say purposes. One is the procreative end or purpose. One is the unitive end or purpose. Mm -hmm. So if, if that's what sex is, that's what sex is for, then the question of like, well, what, how do we know when sex is, is good, like morally speaking, is when it is in harmony with both of those ends. Mm. So anytime that a sexual act deliberately undercuts or undermines one of those ends, then we would say that makes it immoral, right? Okay. So remember, for something to be immoral, it has to be done knowingly and willingly. So if you knowingly and or willingly subvert one of those purposes, uh -huh. then that makes the sexual act immoral. This would be the Catholic sort of line of reasoning. Let's take the unitive. Let's begin there as an example. To knowingly or willingly engage in sexual activity in a way that is expressly contrary to the unitive dimension. So this would this so this would be like an example of like non-consensual sex, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not bringing people together. It's the act of one person against another. And so that's a violation. That's a violation of the intrinsic good of human sexuality is that it is unitive. It's bringing people together. 
So non-consensual sex is always wrong. Yeah. Because it's violating that intrinsic purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because it's not respecting them. It's treating them as a means to an end mm-hmm. rather than an end in, in themselves. The other, this procreative aspect, and this is where it gets like people get more contentious, is that anything that violates knowingly and willingly violates the procreative dimension of human sexuality would be contrary to the good of the human person. This would include sexual acts by oneself, right? Mm -hmm. That would include sexual acts of two people of the same sex Mm -hmm. that would even include sexual acts between two people of the opposite sex, even married people, that is contraceptive in nature, right? Okay. That is deliberately, again, knowingly and or willingly undermining the procreative dimension of human sexuality. Yeah. That makes the sexual act immoral Mm -hmm. because it's not in continuity with the good of human sexuality. So it's worth... I really want to emphasize that knowing and willing part because the one kind of outlier that people will want to jump to is about, well, what about couples that are infertile? Oh, okay. Should they then not be allowed to have sex because they, they're infertile? But again, for, for a married man and woman who, through no choice of their own, are um, infertile, they are, they are not knowingly or willingly subverting they're not doing anything to undermine their reproductive faculties yeah if they by nature have have lost or don't have those faculties that's a different matter but that's not an act that they've committed whereas something like contraception or these other things they are here's where we have like a functioning reproductive system that is being used contrary to its proper end Mm -hmm. so that's why it's it's essentially different yeah does that make sense yeah so last time we talked about the fifth commandment and thou shall not kill and you were saying there's that misconception that contraception is that's not why we oh yeah are against contraception it is because it's against our nature yeah and and see this is if we go back to just kind of the the basic understanding of like what is sin I had, you know, we've been using this language of like sin is, as Augustine used this expression of like to be curved in on oneself, that we love ourselves first and we love God and others last. Mm -hmm. So we love ourselves first and most. Um, That becomes a kind of delineating marker of like what makes sexual acts sinful or not Mm -hmm. is that because sex is intended to be a whole gift of oneself to another person. Mm-hmm. But if we are, again, intentionally withholding the fullness of ourselves, yeah. which would include our, our reproductive powers, if there's something in our sexual act that we're saying, we want this but not all of it, and that's what contraception does, is that is that it is, it's introducing uh, something to inhibit the otherwise natural functioning of the body. Mm-hmm. So we're we're withholding. And why are we withholding? Well, for some kind of, I mean, again, there are a million reasons under the sun and I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because I know that, that some couples, you know, really 
there are health reasons, there are all kinds of things like that. This is not easy. But at the end of the day, the reason why the church says no to this universally is that the sexual act has to be a whole gift of oneself. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in a place or in a position where you're able to give yourself wholly and fully to the other person, then it is better to simply abstain than to enter halfway. Because this kind of halfway mentality of, of approaching human sexuality is precisely what leads to all of the abuses of human sexuality that we that we see today, mm-hmm. right? Where sex becomes a means of achieving pleasure and it's about self-gratification. And the openness to life is one of the things that helps protect us against treating sex in this kind of flippant way. Is it because we always approach sex with the sense of sacredness and openness? Because we realize that human sexuality is in the context of a family and that it's open to life. So it's not about me getting what I want, Mm -hmm. but it's a radical gift of myself that is actually not only open to the partner, but but open to new life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's what it's one of the things that helps keep us open and Directed outwards. And truly directed outwards. Mm -hmm. And protects sex from becoming something merely like selfish. Yeah. That's like a, it's one of those examples of, well, this sin doesn't hurt anybody. Like self-gratification wouldn't necessarily hurt anybody. Yeah. But what would you say about those like um, internal abuses on the soul or whatever? Well, that's exactly it, is that, is that we're not harming... Well, okay, in one sense, we are harming... We're harming others to the extent that we are objectifying others, right? Mm-hmm. I use another person as a means to my end. So that's, that's degrading for that person. It's not good for them. Even when, and we can say this clearly... You're talking about like pornography or like if someone's you know you're using somebody else yeah i mean that's an example of prostitution but but again the church wants to push it even further that that the contraceptive act in principle is taking sex and utilitizing it right it's it's turning it into a a a function um where it's separating what we what i want from sex versus what i don't want from sex rather than embracing it as a whole act. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so all of these acts, every, everything that we just named, um, that we have to protect ourselves, we have to always be vigilant against the objectification of the other mm-hmm. and seeing them as a means to our end. Um, and again, and uh, you, know, you brought up th- these examples, but... This includes, and that's why I have to be clear about this, is that this includes when the other person gives their consent, so to speak. Because a consent to be used is still wrong. That doesn't, that doesn't make something okay just because they're okay with it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons we could say about why that is. I mean, in a lot of cases, there are 
economic pressures of why would a person do that, right? If they're if they're getting financial compensation for sexual acts, well, is that really a free choice? How can we determine that that, that they're really freely choosing that? But even that aside, even if someone is giving their consent, that doesn't make something immoral moral. So we always have to respect the other person, even if that person is not respecting themselves. Yeah. Right? Um, so when it comes to this Catholic approach to human sexuality, the one thing that I hope that people at least recognize about it is that it is thoroughly consistent. And that is, I think, the greatest thing in its favor is that it's not arbitrary. It's not saying, well, we don't like these things because they're gross, or we don't like these things, but that's not how we do it. Um, it's a clear and coherent thing of... Sexu human sexuality has these intrinsic purposes and to violate those purposes is immoral. It's that simple. And there are a million things that you can list under that that violate those principles, but we don't have to single any one of them out. But we're just across the board, here's the good of human sexuality and anything that doesn't live up to it is less than good. We have to do better. Um, so one of the things that I like to really emphasize with this is that, especially when we think about um, maybe married couples that are struggling with this issue of contraception and the church's teaching, or especially when it comes to homosexuality, that we see that as, as really problematic that, well, that we are basically denying these people sexual fulfillment or something like that. We're, we're putting on them a burden that is too much to carry. But my response to that is simply that... So the former would be too much to carry as in, well, we can't afford another child. And the latter being, we can't keep up chastity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when it comes to homosexuality, like how can you consign a whole group of the population to permanent like like celibacy, yeah. right? Um, it's unfair to do that. But the, what I, what always comes back, and I think we always have to keep in mind, is that when we understand the fullness of what the church is calling us to in terms of human sexuality, is that this is not easy for anybody. So we're not singling out gay people. We're not singling out single people or married people or whatever, like, Whatever your state in life, whatever your sexual orientation, wh wherever you are, the church calls you to a high standard. And so I think we just have to dismiss this idea, this kind of myth that, well, we're really putting a, a burden or a cross on these people mm -hmm. as if other people have it easy. Yeah. And, and so if nothing else we say from the Catholic perspective is that we're all called to a very high standard and it's not meant to be easy for any of us because at the end of the day, when it comes to this, there, there are always things that we want to do that we shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. That's just human nature. And so the, developing the process, developing that virtue of self-control, chastity, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that's what we're all called to do. And for some of us, chastity looks different than for other people. But 
we're all called to a high standard and our own personal desires or inclinations are not what sets the rules. The nature of human sexuality is what sets the rules and we conform ourselves to it. And again, the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is that we have to remember that the rules that God gave us are not arbitrary. They're not just, well, because, but they're, they're for our good. So these are rules for human flourishing. These are rules for human happiness. I use these examples and it may seem kind of petty or silly or goofy or whatever, but it really is just like this. Like if you have a, you know, an instruction manual for your car and it says like it needs this oil and it needs this gas and it, it, this is what you need to keep it running well, these rules about human sexuality, God, God is not keeping any good thing from us. We always have to trust that, absolutely. God is not keeping any good thing from us. So if there's something that God says not to do, it's for our good that we not do it. Mm-hmm. And we have to trust that. We have to, to, to always keep that in mind and, and understand the reasoning behind it. Otherwise, we're just following Adam and Eve over and over again. Yeah, oh, exactly. that's exactly it. It's like, oh, I can decide. I know what's right and wrong. I can choose for myself. That is the, that's the original sin is we think that we know best. We can be our own creators. One of the few places in the New Testament where it unambiguously is referring to same-sex acts is in Romans chapter 1. Paul says that men give up natural relations with women and are consumed with passion for one another, etc. But what does he say is the root of that? Where does it come from? He says where it comes from is idolatry. Now what's the what's the rationale there? He says they began rather than worshiping the creator, they worship the creature. Mm, okay. Is it yeah, so yeah. so what's he saying there? But because I have a creator, my creator tells me who I am and what I am. But if I can reject my creator, I can, I can create myself. I can determine who I am, how I'm going to live, what I am, mm-hmm. how I'm going to live my life. Every form of sin follows precisely from that logic of I am rejecting my creator and I will be my own God. I will be my own creator. I will determine who I am, what I am, how I will live my life. That's the root of all sin, and we have to be really careful when we buy into that logic, if that makes sense. So in short, if we're to summarize what we've said so far... Of the Sixth Commandment. Of the Sixth Commandment, I would say like this. Don't have sex with someone that you are not okay with having children with that person. That's that's the rule of thumb. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you think, oh, this is fine, but like, oh, it would, if it would, if you think, oh, this would be a really, a problem, a real problem if we got pregnant, that's, okay, sign number one, that's the kind of sex that people shouldn't be having. So that's, that's rule number one is don't have sex with someone that you don't want to have kids with. And rule number two, then the extension of that would be don't have kids with somebody that you're not in a lifelong committed exclusive relationship with, i.e. marriage. Yeah. So that's why sex is for marriage. And honestly, that was something I wish that, like, I wish that it had been explained to me that simply. 
because at least in my understanding growing up, sex outside of marriage was bad because uh, it just is. Don't do it. It's shamed. <laughs> sex is for marriage. But there was never, I, I, nobody ever explained because I don't think anyone really understood why. And partly because the contraception mentality confuses the issue. But once you realize that sex is for procreation, sex is for having children, and having children is something that's for marriage. Therefore, sex is for marriage. It's that simple. But we've so confused the issue, and, and we tell kids, like, sex is for marriage, but, but there's, no, there's no understanding of the logic. What's the connection between these things? We're just telling, of course, if you just tell kids don't have sex because we said not to, that, of course, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. But if you can explain to a kid what sex is for and why sex is so powerful and, and, the, and that it, it, it has this potential to bring new life into the world and that if you're going to do that, you need to be in a position where you're in a stable, committed relationship, i.e. a marriage, where you're able to raise children and respect your sexuality. Yeah. If that's the message... Abstinence does make sense. The only reason it doesn't make sense is because we, we've skipped the middle thing. Um, precisely because we have, we've neglected the fact that sex is procreative. So once you buy into the contraception mentality, then why is premarital sex wrong? It's not really clear. Why is homosexuality wrong? It's not really clear. Why are any of these other things wrong? Oh, I don't know. Because we've lost the procreative dimension of, of human sexuality. And so everything that our culture has accepted and everything that I, that I think our culture will accept in the coming decades is all because we have lost sight of the essential relationship between human sexuality and procreation. You miss that, everything will unravel from that. Do you think it's worth emphasizing, like, the inputting that unitive and procreative nature of sex? Like, yeah. the, you are transcending your own humanity in a way, and you are divine in that sense because you are, you are part of a creation of a new being. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but I think that this is one of the reasons why the devil really hates sexuality and why the devil will do whatever he can to distort and subvert and destroy human sexuality. Mm-hmm. And we see that in a, I mean, a million different ways. But the devil hates human sexuality because it's a power that even the angels don't have. Because when, when human beings come together for procreation, what is being brought into existence is not just a, a new material being, like in the case with animals. Animals can reproduce. Yeah. Right? But what humans produce in their, with their sexual power, what God has uniquely given to human beings and to no other creature, not to animals, not to angels, is this ability to produce an immortal soul. Right? Mm-hmm. That the production of the human soul happens in the sexual act. And... That is what makes human sexuality sacred beyond imagination. And that's why the devil hates it. And the devil will do anything he can to sterilize people, to subvert our procreative abilities, uh, to take 
sex in whatever way he can and turn it away from its procreative power. Yeah. Because because if if the devil is a creature of pride and of envy, which are the only sins that angels can commit. Aquinas talks about this, right? An angel can't lust, right? Oh, okay. Because an angel doesn't have sexual desires. So there's no, there's no lust, right? An angel doesn't have greed or gluttony because they don't have they don't have desire for material things. An angel doesn't get hungry, so there's no gluttony. So it's pride and what? Pride and envy. Okay. Those are the sins that angels commit. And so if if the devil is envious of us, what's the one thing that we have that the devils don't have? It's this procreative ability. And so yeah, I mean, it makes sense that he does what he can to distort and destroy that. Um, that's why we have to cherish it as a, as a church and, and uphold this. Envy is the other, other side that we're looking at today. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's jump to the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment says, um, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, and covet means what? Desire, envy. Yeah. You want her or you want him on yeah. your own. So we use the word lust, right, to, to define that kind of relationship. And, and this is where it's important to recognize that we can violate this commandment, the sixth commandment slash the ninth commandment, not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our looks, uh, and in our, in our hearts, right? Mm-hmm. That this is more than just actions, but this is actually about like our disposition towards other people. We don't lust after other people precisely because we don't objectify other people. Mm-hmm. So we always have to treat other people with with real love. And that's the thing is that lust is the opposite in some ways of love. To lust after someone is to not treat them as a whole person. Yeah, it's more of the body versus love is nurturing the soul. Yeah, well, it's, it's the whole person. It's the whole person, yeah. yeah. Now, it's interesting um, that Dante, Dante's Inferno, so he talks about in like, well, Dante's Purgatorio, in the Purgatory, he goes through the seven deadly sins. And he actually puts, so of course, the, the first sin, the worst sin of all of the seven capital sins would be... Pride. Pride, exactly. So pride is the worst sin. Pride is the root of all sin. Mm-hmm. The last sin, the final sin to be purged in purgatory, according to Dante, is actually lust. Mm. And it's fascinating because lust is the sin that is, again, it's still deadly. So it is not not something to be toyed with. But we recognize that it is, it's a distortion of something that really is authentically good. Right? So it's, it's, it's love for another person, but in a truncated and in an incomplete way yeah. where we've ob- objectified them. So we have to kind of heal that and come to a fuller understanding of love and appreciation for other people. And that's how we escape from lust. So rather than, because I find that with all of these things, it can be really easy to get bogged down in all of the don'ts of, you know, all of the things we could enumerate of like, well, here's all the ways you can violate the commandment. Even, yeah, just my catechism class is like, oh, that's a sin? That's a sin? Like, yeah. just, it seems like it's insurmountable. Yes. 
And again, once we start talking about sex, then it's going to, those, it goes through the roof, yeah. right? Everything is sinful. Because again, we're talking about not just actions, but thoughts, yeah. right? For the sake of people's own conscience, we have to remember that mortal sin can be even sins of the heart. People want to say, oh, I didn't do anything. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't cheat on my wife. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. Yeah. So mortal sin can happen in the heart. Yeah. That's really important that we recognize that, that we can't justify our internal thoughts, our, our practices of how we look, what we look at, how we view other people, that's deadly, deadly serious. Yeah. So here's the antidote. Rather than getting into all those things of like, don't do this, don't do that, because that, that becomes a kind of endless pursuit. Rather than looking to avoid a million different things, what's the opposite of lust? Lust is a vice and the virtue is chastity. Once, once you grasp, once a person grasps what chastity is, it's, it's really beautiful and it's a positive thing. Rather than just like a negative of like, you know, don't have sex, don't do this, don't do that. Rather than being about all the things that we don't do, chastity is the positive virtue that we are pursuing. So I want to read this definition. Um, John Paul II says, Chastity is the spiritual energy capable of defending love from the perils of selfishness and aggressiveness and able to advance it towards its full realization. It's so excellent that this is what we are pursuing. We're not just avoiding all these sins. It's, it's a power of love where our own selfish desires are contained, right? Our selfishness is, is kept in check and our love for others is able to be maximized. Yeah. Because we're living chastely, right? So chastity is about really, like he says, chastity is a spiritual power, a spiritual energy of protecting and pursuing love. And we have to have that kind of positive view. So chastity, and so I want to define a few terms here because chastity, often people confuse chastity with celibacy. We are all called ch to chastity. Even married people are called to chastity. Chastity does not mean that you don't have sex. Chastity means that you are, as he's saying, you are in control of your sexual powers. You're in control of your love and you're able to channel that spiritual energy in the right ways and mm -hmm. in the healthy ways. Yeah. So chastity looks different for every person according to their station in life. So a single person who is pursuing marriage is called to be chaste and their chaste, their chastity is what we would call continence. So here's another term. Continence means the withholding or the holding in of sexual activity. Again, as we use that spiritual energy that John Paul is talking about to discern our own vocation in life, to pursue uh, a spouse, to, to look for a spouse, to discern that relationship, the courtship process has to be done with chastity, right? Where like you are, it's a kind of like self-possession. 
Mm-hmm. That you're not being controlled by your desires. You're not being persuaded or 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 confused or, or distorted by your passions. You're in control of yourself and you're able to pursue these things. Okay, so that's chastity for a single person. Chastity in married life means taking that that spiritual energy and directing it properly towards uh, your spouse. Um, but again, even within marriage, the Bible says that we should have periods of continence. Um, again, so even married couples should have periods of abstinence deliberately, um, mutually agreed upon for the sake of furthering their own, well, one, exercising and practicing self-discipline because yeah. that's good for everybody. So you exercise self-discipline and it, and St. Paul says that so that the couple may pursue prayer um, and things like that. So, so even married couples are always called to chastity. And finally, then, are those who are celibate. Now, to be celibate specifically means to take a vow uh, to abstain from marriage. So specifically, to be celibate means that you are vowing to, to not get married. And of course, then, subsequent to that, if you're not getting married, you're vowing not to engage in sexual activity. Mm-hmm. But what does chastity mean, then, for a priest or for, for a religious but that, again, it's not just, oh, I'm just saying no to sex. I'm saying no to marriage. No, but that it's it, chastity is about taking that spiritual energy, that spiritual power, and redirecting it towards God in prayer and towards service in the church. So that is the positive view. I love that. This positive understanding of we have this sexual power. We all do. We're all sexual beings. Um, single people, married people, religious people, but we take that energy and we direct it in the proper ways. And that's chastity, is being in control of our sexual power. So I want to end with this last um, quote that I think just says it absolutely the best. So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2339. Do you want to read that for us? The alternative is clear. Either man governs his passions and finds peace or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. Boy, that's just it, isn't it, right? Yeah. Either you control your passions and you find peace, or you're controlled by them and you'll be unhappy. So again, this is for our good, that we be in control of ourselves and that we take that goodness of our sexuality because we're all sexual beings and we use that sexual power for the glory of God. Okay, so that wraps up our episode on the sixth and ninth commandment. That's right. So we've got a few commandments that we haven't covered yet. We're going to wrap them all up next time. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. Yeah. The eighth commandment, don't bear false witness. And the tenth commandment, don't covet thy neighbor's goods. All in one? All in one. So lying, stealing, coveting. Next time. Okay. Cool. So, uh, yeah, if you have any questions that you want us to cover, questions about things that we've covered already, um, send an email to us at theologyontape at gmail.com. Happy to go over those. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.